Hey, listeners, do you fucking love music? Because we do. And if you fucking love music, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash on the record music, where for just $5 a month, you can have access to our private podcast where we go in depth on albums, do extended album reviews, do impromptu shows, do live shows, legacy albums, lots of great content on the Patreon, on the private podcast, because we want to share our love of music with the entire world. Look, it's really fucking easy these days to put out a video on YouTube and say, here's why this band sucks, or here are the worst songs out today, or or this song or this album is just crap. It's all clickbait. And that's not who we are. We love music. and We love sharing music. We love talking about music. We are musicians. We are music listeners. We go to concerts. We go to festivals. And that's what we want to spread to the world. And you can help us do that. If you believe these same things that I'm talking about right now, please consider joining us on Patreon. We know you have a choice with what to do with your money. And we hope for just $5 a month, you consider supporting us so we can continue to spread this message and continue our mission of just fucking rocking. So if you would, please go to patreon.com slash on the record music and join us. Now let's get fucking rocking. On the Record Music is a music podcast for those who just fucking love music. In today's episode, we are doing a full-on album review of Paul McCartney's new album, McCartney 3. One of the best ways you can support this podcast is by leaving us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, leaving us a review there is much appreciated. And then also sharing this with one other person who might dig this show. For your extra consumption needs, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all at On The Record Music. But enough of this, let's get on with the show and rock and roll. And we're On The Record, a music podcast discussing all things music, just because we're two guys that just fucking love music. And who are these two guys? It is me, and it is he, my friend Ringer and the J-Man here today with On The Record Music Podcast. Jesse Drager here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Benjamin Franklin Ringhofer out in Chicago, Illinois. Six, Close six, enough. How we doing, Jesse? Six six one two. I'm trying to remember now. The uh, old uh, Bozo the Clown show used to have the. Uh, it's not Smokey the Bear, but it was uh, Scruff McGruff, Chicago, Illinois. And then I'm trying to remember the zip codes, but I remember the Chicago, Illinois zip codes. So I never watched Bozo the Clown. Oh, you have to. Uh, Bozo was the best. He said shit on live TV when I was like five. Loved him ever since. <laughs> Groundbreaking. I know, dude. It's like blew your mind. Kids show, and he's like trying to push a like stuffed bear. It's awesome. <laughs> so ah, shit's good over in St. Paul. So uh, gosh, yeah, it's uh, nice and bright. Uh, been listening to some music all this week, so it's been wonderful. How are you doing out in Chi Town? Pretty good. Been living up to my New Year's intentions, and been spending some more time with some music. I did a little dig into the Hollies, like I talked about on our last week's Ooh. episode. And still really haven't totally gotten into them, but I at least listened to like the quote unquote greatest hits. They had some like album of like 20 songs or whatever. So I went through that just to kind of get my feet wet and to get acquainted with them. But I'm living up to what I said I would do. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. Yeah, uh, definitely a fun, fun band to get into. Uh, what else you got in this week in music going on? So we got another catalog sale, another album or a music catalog sale. A couple of them, actually. One that I know of is Dan Wilson has sold his catalog. So Dan Wilson, mostly known of semi-sonic fame, but has also done a lot on his own and then has become a songwriter for hire, basically, has sold his catalog to Primary Wave Music Publishing, 
This I saw announced by 89.3 The Current and then picked up some other places as well. So again, he's most known for Closing Time by Semisonic. That's probably the song that a lot of people know. But I actually learned, and I didn't realize this, he's a co-songwriter for Someone Like You by Adele. Oh, and that's yeah. arguably Adele's biggest hit or one of them. Uh, he's also been a co-songwriter for Taylor Swift. He wrote co-wrote Treacherous with Taylor Swift, but he's also written songs for John Lennon or John Legend. Excuse me, <laughs> not John Lennon. John Legend, Pink, Chris Stapleton, Leon Bridges, and many, many more. So he has sold that catalog, and I'm guessing primarily they were interested in a lot of those songs that he had yeah. written for those other pop stars, not so much the Semisodic catalog or the Trips Shakespeare catalog or the Dan Wilson solo catalog, although I'm sure there's some value in that, but it's probably like the Adele, Taylor Swift, that kind of stuff. It didn't say how much he sold it for, but he's another one to have sold his music. Yeah, and it, it, it's a weird thing to kind of be looking at uh, these people selling to the corporations, and it's all like when one domino fell, all of them did, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a thing. You know, now Neil Young sold half of his catalog. I did not know that. Yeah, I saw that in one of the past scenes. You know, I don't get onto social media a lot, uh, you know, since since the start of last summer. But uh, the one one passing article I saw was Neil Young sold half of his catalog. Um, Interesting. So, and I was wondering when I saw that. Was what, it the good half or the bad half? Hopefully it wasn't tonight tonight because that that whole section in seventy five was phenomenal. I'd take that if, if he has it for sale, I'll buy it. But absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But what is it that every, all these artists are selling these things now? What is the gamut here? You know, the Tommy, the White Power Ranger, and I just want to know, Ben, what the fuck is going on? That's actually a really good question, and. The article that I was reading actually kind of addressed it or talked about it. The musicians themselves and people who have been selling parts of their catalog or all of their catalog haven't really been speaking out about why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But there was some potential insight or reasons why. I mean, first and foremost is just to get cash up front. So they have this massive catalog. And in some cases, you know, Bob Dylan can fetch $400 million for his catalog. I doubt Dan Wilson is anywhere near that ballpark. But it's probably still in the millions, I would think. Yeah, definitely. So you can get cash up front and it allows them to live comfortably first and foremost. I mean, some people like the megastars, Bob Dylan, probably aren't hurting for cash. But a guy like Dan Wilson, like he might not be as rich as people think they are. And there's actually a really good book called So You Want to Be a Rockstar. And it was written by the drummer of Semisonic. And his name slips me at the moment but he wrote this book and it was about their experience having a number one hit in closing time in that whole process of going through the business side of being a musician and basically when it was all said and done you know they really walked away with nothing Mm -hmm. relatively speaking for how much fame they had how much notoriety they had how many how busy they were they didn't make that much money from it and so I think people just assume musicians have a lot of money which some certainly do, but I think there's this misconception that a lot of artists have a lot of money. And so I think in some cases, like selling this catalog gives them, it's not to say that they're poor or hurting for cash. Like, don't get me confused here, but, but, you know, several million dollars into someone who, you know, is still making 
after royalties and all that, you know, still probably several hundred thousand dollars a year, that cash can just give them an infusion to either just live a more comfortable lifestyle or a lifestyle that they want, but also just to be able to fund new projects if they want to put that money to recording new music for themselves or getting involved in philanthropy, things like that. So they just have more cash at their disposal. Um, Also, another reason is just addressing what's coming now, and that's the inevitable death of all of us, Jesse. We're all going to die. And taking care of this now does kind of square that away of let's get that money up front and then that way we can do it with what we want. And then also that ensures that the music goes to a competent owner who's going to handle it well. Um, and so, but that's all a matter of opinion too, because some mm-hmm. people would rather keep that mm-hmm. music rights in the family and have the family control it, which is totally understandable too. But that's also a lot of work for the family if that's not something they want to take on and who knows, like your family could turn around and sell it to the highest bidder right after you die anyway. So, you know, you don't know what's going to happen there. And then in the case of like someone like Prince, if you don't have any plan, I mean, now there's that all of that legal battle. So those were just some arguments of why someone might do it. Now, does that make it right? Because again, like my initial response to hearing all these announcements is negative too. You because know, my fear is like the music's going to be mistreated. It's going to be mm-hmm. commercialized the hell out of. It might be less accessible. Maybe they won't maintain the spirit of the artist or kind of what I'm concerned about is I don't want this to become the norm in the sense that like the only way to make money off of your music is, is to sell. ultimately sell it and get rid of it and give it away, yeah. you know, and, and then have certain corporations like these record labels or whatever become even more powerful. So mm-hmm. your only option is to sell your music up front. And that's what I'm most concerned about. But, you know, I, I'm not these artists either, but that's just my music fan perspective, really. No, I agree with your last point there. And that's kind of like what I'm worried about. But, you know, what the hopes are for me when going down this road is, Okay, yeah, you can kind of talk about who's going to be responsible with it. Obviously, Prince's family, Michael Jackson's family. I mean, aside from their normal weirdness, you know, they pretty much were fighting all over Michael Jackson's shit, and it's, you know, dis- disheartening. And, mm-hmm. you know, Prince's stuff is, you know, in, in the long, in, in reality, with Prince's stuff, if we're going to, we're going to talk openly about this. I don't mind them releasing some of the stuff, but you know that sure. they're just going to release, because he had multiple albums has multiple albums that were never released <laughs> oh yeah i mean doesn't he have like hundreds if not thousands of unreleased songs in I, that I, vault i think his? i heard somewhere around the 600s and that could have gone up okay. but i mean it was like 600 some songs unreleased that were nearly completed if, if whatever so i mean you got stuff you can release throughout the years you know to kind of do it but mm-hmm. you know how much of it is just exploitation off of it and how much right. is actually respecting what he really wanted i mean exactly to me i would have somebody that was really close to prince go through the catalog go what do you think would make a really good posthumous uh release for prince in his name throughout his catalog throughout the years kind of call it the un you know unreleased greatest hits be satisfied with that and occasionally release something on his birthday you know like a song or mm-hmm. something donate that to charity or something like that especially with yeah. Minnesota music and stuff like that with all these venues going down it's like use that to do something in the community and it's kind of what I wanted to get to with you know maybe you know maybe not Bob Dylan but maybe Dan Wilson notices that hey all these music venues are really going to go down 
you know, maybe we're not going to be able to save all these things. And people are reinvesting their aspect of music in a different way. And I hope that does come true because that area, after we come out of the pandemic, like we said, it will be the last thing that comes around. You know, I mean, everybody will get to go to a restaurant. Everybody will get to go bowling and stuff like that. But music venues, the way we know it, will be the last thing to do because we're body Mm -hmm. to body, sweating, breathing all on each other. Yep. Is there a better investment that people are probably trying to see and then leave another different legacy on top of it? I hope mm-hmm. so. I hope so because that area is going to need it, you know, need some help. So that's my hope. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. And who knows? I mean, good for them, I guess, for capitalizing on the work that they've created. And if you're making the decision to sell your work, I mean, at least that comes from a position of power where you're not being forced to sell your music or you're in a position where that's your only option. You know, I would think for Neil Young, Bob Dylan, and even Dan Wilson, they were in a position where they were choosing to do this because they saw a benefit to themselves and they're not doing it out of desperation or some other negative reason like that. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I just I just remembered, you know, Jacob Jacob Dylan doesn't need that much. He's got the wallflower, so he doesn't need <laughs> Bob Dylan's money that much. Hey, that's a catalog <laughs> worth millions. I still don't understand how he beat out, uh, or how Bob Dylan beat out the Wallflowers that year, '97, I think it was, something like that. Grammy yeah. album of the year. Time mm-hmm. out of mind is not that great, and probably dropped <laughs> the sale of Bob Dylan's uh, catalog just a titch. <laughs> yeah, we. Ooh, there's. Oh, you have that album now. We'll leave that one out. Yeah. You can keep that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it beat my son. It shouldn't have, Bob. Probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Was it Sixth Avenue Heartache? Was that the Wallflowers album? Yeah. That was a great one. That was a great, oh, total, all around, where it's like, holy cow, you know, like when you look back in history, an actual, like J- Julian Lennon never came up with anything. Mick mm-hmm. Jagger's kids never came up with anything. None of these rock stars, none of their kids really amounted to anything. And here's Jacob Dylan with the Wallflowers really doing a pretty good job. Sean Lennon is actually doing probably one of the next better ones, yeah. uh, mostly production-wise, but he's, you know, they, they got a pretty good thing going on nowadays. Yeah, Ghost of a Sabertooth Tiger is yeah. one of his bands, and then the uh, Claypool Lennon Delirium. I can't, I don't can't remember if it's Claypool Lennon or Lennon Claypool Delirium. It's one of the two. Lennon Claypool, I think. And that's kind of a weird, kind of trippy, out there sort of band, but it's pretty cool. Oh, totally. And uh, you know, speaking of Beal segue. Speaking of this, yeah. <laughs> speaking of the Lennons, the McCartneys, the Harrisons, and the Stars. Let's talk about McCartney and uh, Sir Paul McCartney, not Stella McCartney. She has a wonderful dress line and clothing line, but we're going to go with Sir Paul McCartney today at least, right, Ben? Sir James Paul McCartney, born James Paul McCartney. He was born June 18th, 1942, most likely best known for his work as a member of the Fab Four, the Beatles, but also for some of his solo work and his work with Wings, That's about all I'm going to do on Paul. If you want to talk more about Paul, you can, but there's so much information and stuff out there about Paul McCartney. We don't need to make this a biographical episode about Paul. Are you sure about that? I mean, we can. I don't know. There's a lot we can go down, but... I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, we could spend... Like a, a year's worth of episodes just doing Paul McCartney, and then another year of the rest of the Beatles, so... You know, I figure we'll just let that information exist where it exists. Well, if you want to learn more about Paul McCartney, if you haven't heard of Paul McCartney, just search his name and you'll find some stuff. So my question is, which Paul McCartney, though, the, the dead one or the live one? 
Well, this there's... would be the live one that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the live one. That's right. Because right. he's the Paul one who is, has Paul been still dead. making the music. Paul is dead. But let's talk about this. Let's talk about this and let's bring it back. So when's the first time that you heard Paul McCartney? Uh, so I was in the womb and my dad, no, just kidding. I mean, uh, that's probably true for the, you, I would think. Most likely just cause my dad, yeah. my dad was around. So, um, honestly, uh, my first, you know, s- subconscious hearing them was probably like when I was like five or six mm-hmm. and I first heard like come together and, uh, mm-hmm. I want to hold your hand. So that, that very conscious then, um, but really let's just go to the point when in, uh, 99, 2000 is when the reissue of Yellow Submarine came out and really got into that album. And so that's really the first time I really got into the Beatles. And I definitely want to say Blackbird is one of the very first songs mm. that I recognized from Paul McCartney that I absolutely loved. So um, usually right around in that period. Um, and then I think if I'm going to be honest, he his solo career out of all the Beatles, was the first one that I ever really got into, you know, mm. because it has more of the recognizable songs out of it. Yep. Really, especially when you get Band on the Run, huge, Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just uh, Maybe I'm Amazed has always Maybe been, I'm a, amazed. Has been yep. a favorite of mine, actually, that was went from a young age going mm-hmm. on. So um, I would definitely say those are, and of course Maybe I'm Amazed came from his first solo album, which was called McCartney. Yep. Um, so that's really kind of the first time I really heard heard him um, in, in, in the whole aspect of, of McCartneyism. So sure. how about you? Well, similar to you, I heard the Beatles first when I was a kid. I don't know exactly the age, somewhere probably between the ages of five and seven, give or take. And I remember I had this Beatles CD or my parents had this Beatles CD, but it was like a, a single CD. So it had like three tracks on it, I think. And I remember one of them being Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I don't remember what the other two were. So that was the first time I kind of remember hearing the Beatles. But I don't mm-hmm. remember like really the first time I heard Paul. Because for a long time too, as a music listener, I really didn't know the difference between Paul and John on vocals. Just because I was never, like not until I really got into the Beatles when I was probably like 22 or 23 was I able to start to like parse out like or hear the differences in their voices so Uh to me it was all just the Beatles and so my first experience with Paul McCartney as like a solo musician or outside of the Beatles probably was maybe I'm amazed but I don't know for sure I couldn't tell you the first song that I heard that was a solo Paul song and honestly I I think for a long time I just assumed that was a Beatles song because it kind of has that vibe so I probably just assume maybe I'm amazed was a Beatles song from like the later half of the Beatles yeah, um, yeah. You know, I also probably heard Band on the Run, The Wings, and Live and Let Die. I probably heard those songs, but I didn't really know that they were maybe solo Paul McCartney songs. So I really didn't become aware of, like, Paul as a solo artist until after I really got into the Beatles. So I got into the Beatles seven, eight years ago, and Paul and the solo Beatles, I've even said this recently, is, like, I have hardly gone into any of their solo stuff so really i only became aware of paul as a solo musician you know five six years ago maybe six seven years ago and now i'm really only starting to distinguish solo paul from beetle paul and you know any solo beetle from the beatles Mm -hmm. oh definitely especially kind of 
when I did my 1971 Beatles album or unreleased Beatles album where I was showing you a couple of these different like tunes of McCartney's and Lennon's and Harrison's that were kind of pulled out of obscurity because I mm-hmm. really tried to make an honest album for that thing. And uh, yeah, McCartney for his first couple of uh, albums right after the Beatles was very strong out of the box. Uh, kept it going throughout the 70s, kind of started doing some collaboration and other projects in the 80s. And then um, one of the things that I, that I do remember as a child I watched with my father was uh, McCartney. I think it was McCartney that started the Unplugged series for MTV. Mm. And he did it in like 92 or 93. Okay. Um, and he kind of started it off. And one of the greatest clips from there is him trying to play the Beatles' uh, We Can Work It Out, released in 65 as the double A-side, the second A-side to Day Tripper. And uh, he went into the first verse, did fine, but then like halfway through he forgot the lyrics and he just stopped the whole song and he asked the drummer, what's the lyrics? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, I haven't sung for 30 years, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was a great memory. And that just I just popped in my head. I didn't have it in my notes, but it just popped in my head because I was thinking, you know, I think that's also another time that I really – you know, remember seeing McCartney by himself, I guess. Yeah. Paul's a funny dude. I was, I read a couple interviews that <laughs> he did leading up to this album release. And there was a couple points that I laughed out loud and it's kind of hard. F- I don't do that a lot. When I read, I don't really laugh out loud, but there was a couple parts where like I could just hear his voice giving this quip remark, knowing how he would deliver it and laughing out loud. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, have you seen Paul McCartney live? Um, yeah, three, four times, three times. Okay. Yep. 2004 was my first time. Um, I saw it with my, my father, my uncle, and I think it was my aunt Kristen. Might've been some other people. No, no, no. It was just my dad and I, and then, uh, the other people went, uh, in another section. So we, we had, we had closer tickets, my dad and I. So we saw them in 2004. I saw him again in 2000, he was at Target Center, uh, and then I saw him another time at XL again. Uh, okay. That would have been like 2009, I think. Was 2009 I last saw, was, saw him? Uh, yeah, I can't remember when that last time at the Target Center was, but I tried going to the Target Field one mm-hmm. uh, that you were at when you were working at Target Field. I was, yes. I was, trying, I was bumming around out there, and I went to Poor House for a ticket, but I couldn't get in okay. for the raffle. There was a raffle, but... Yep. And that's the only time that I've seen him. That was August 2nd, 2014. 14. He performed at Target Field. And I wasn't there as a fan. I was there as an employee of Target Field. And I so I was getting paid to be at the show. And a cool thing for me was, so I worked in this section. It was called the um, Premium Services section. So for Twins games, I worked. There was like, it was this area called the Legends Club. And that was kind of the, yeah, yeah. it wasn't. The suite level, although sometimes I did work up there, but predominantly I worked in this Legends Club area. So it's kind of in between like the lower deck and the upper deck behind home plate area. And that also included so the suite level. And then there's these there's like the offices, the team offices out in left field, if you're looking at it from a baseball field perspective. And then there's also balconies on those offices. So sometimes they would have like groups up on these balconies or events on these balconies. And so I actually got put up on this balcony for the concert. I think maybe like my boss was doing me a fa- a do me a solid because he knew I was a big fan. So he put <laughs> me up there. It was this small group of like, um, regents from the university of minnesota so like the president 
was there the athletic director was there and some other people so it was a pretty tame crowd like they weren't getting wild so I really didn't even have to do much other than just stand there and I just kind of positioned myself towards the edge of the balcony and basically just got to watch Paul McCartney perform live for free well not only for free I got paid to do it yeah no shit that's awesome actually now with those with those people, you got to make sure you go out and blow their their lighters out. You know when they get to the Hey Jude part and they're they're winging it. You got to make sure that they're not starting fires though. One of my favorite memories though of that yeah. night was actually before the concert started. So for working there, we had to report like forty five minutes before gates opened because yeah. we'd have like a. a pre-meeting and you know we kind of run through the night and all those things and we'd learn out we'd find out where we're going to be positioned that night and so I got there before like our meeting started you know five or ten minutes before the meeting started and I and Paul was on stage and he was performing and so I like sat in just one of the seats like kind of far away and because he did was doing like a pre-show sound check performance for like you know, probably people who paid a lot of money or won some tickets or something, you know, so there's probably a hundred people right up next to the stage. I heard him perform Lady Ooh, Madonna nice. and, you know, maybe, and then just kind of banter with the crowd a little bit. And so I got to sit there and watch this like intimate performance of Paul for, you know, 10 minutes before I had to go to work. You know, I got to admit, so when, uh, going back to my memory and I may have mentioned this in our favorite concerts of all time episode our top five concerts of all time, but, um, Really what made that concert in 2004 one of my top favorites of all time was basically out of nowhere. He plays one of my favorite Beatles songs off a of revolver for no one. And I, I like it, it was just amazing. And that's that's the power of music. Like I instantly almost teared up because I was like, I never would have thought he would have played that. But mm-hmm. I could die happy never seeing him again just yeah. because he played that one song. And you know, it's just probably the same thing with you with that actual experience is like you probably don't need to see it ever again because you technically saw him twice that in that one day, you know, and you got a special one on top of right. the regular concert everybody else got, you know. Yeah, I don't think I was supposed to be sitting out there, but, you know, whatever. I was I was going to sit out there until I was told no. <laughs> well, once you get the neural link and have those memories, I might try to steal that memory. Yeah, that was that was <laughs> my thought. It's like, you know, if I get fired for this, it's worth it. Oh shit! Yeah, exactly. I didn't get fired, so it's all good. <laughs> so a little no. bit about this album before we dive too far into it and really yeah, get going. Um, this was basically a quarantine album. He was finishing up some work for yeah. an animated short and just kind of decided to stay in the studio and hammer out some songs. And it's reflected because Paul pretty much does everything Every, on this album, yeah. like literally everything, you know, outside of maybe some engineering or the occasional mixing or something. Yeah. And then there's one song where he doesn't play drums or guitar, but otherwise he does everything. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. It, it does really, it does really play back to exactly what he had to go through when he originally um, did the first McCartney solo album. So kind of going a little bit history of that, and show the, the the history of this. There are three different types of McCartney solo histories in reality. So there's three yeah. different branches of it. And it's Paul McCartney by himself. Uh, following the Beatles' breakup, basically, he he had this urge of, you know, he was in Scotland at the time um, in some sort of cottage, I think he had, or a, a Windsor Castle of some sort. I don't know. He, he had a lot of money back then. Um, and he still does. 
but he was all by himself, depressed, needed the Beatles. He needed some sort of way to go. He played every song on his first album called McCartney. Um, that was released in 1970. Coolest, uh, cool little tidbit about that album, though, is uh, McCartney set the release date to be the exact same as the Let It Be one that was being released. Totally pissed the Beatles off because oh, they're yeah. like, it's going to be competing sales. And McCartney's like, bloody, they'll just pick one or they'll get both. You know, it's the Beatles. What does it matter? And in McCartney's... One of, them, de- one of them gets the money. <laughs> exactly. Or four of them well, get the money. <laughs> what's the difference? So McCartney's going to release his album two months later and he's still going to get all the money. But McCartney's right. The Beatles will still sell and so will my record, you know? And so it's kind of a weird thing like that. But it really pissed off the Beatles and... uh I don't know. It's just awesome. Uh, but anyway, so there's Paul McCartney. That's just him by himself. And mm-hmm. usually he does a lot of the instrumentation when he does these things. So there is a second one that he released in 91, maybe 89. I think it was 1989. And that was McCartney 2 where I think he played the majority. I think that was 1980. Was that 80? Oh, I believe wow. it was. Oh, I wonder if he was trying to do every 10 years. See, I was, I was going to say, uh, oh, wow. So that's 40 years since it was last. right after the breakup of Wings. <gasps> that's right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So good. So in 1980 then. So that's great. So after Paul McCartney did the first McCartney album, there's Paul and Linda. And that was for Ram. So there's a Paul and Linda era where they did for about a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. And then there was Wings when they got Denny Lane into it and uh, a couple other road musicians. Uh, so there's three areas of Paul McCartney's. Paul McCartney's solo career. But that is the the beauty of his McCartney albums is that he usually is the majority of the musician in it. And um, I think it's just a wonderful work that he's done in this with um, just the feel of the album and knowing that it is a quarantine album. One really cool thing about this. So when he was recording this album, he didn't set out to record McCartney 3. And it wasn't really until the end of recording when he realized this album was McCartney 3. And he said from an interview with Loud and Quiet, he said, And then I thought, wait a minute, this is a McCartney record. Because I'd played everything and done it in the same manner as McCartney 1 and 2, that was a little light bulb going off. And I thought, well, that at least makes the point of explaining what I've been doing unbeknownst to me. So he kind of was just going through this process. And then he said there was a, a common denominator between all three McCartney albums too. And the first one came around the time of the breakup of the Beatles. So he had a lot more time on his hands. The second one came after the breakup of wings. So he had a lot more time on his hands. Mm -hmm. And then with quarantine, he also had a lot of time on his hands and then just did all that stuff. So they've kind of named themselves at this point. And that's why there really wasn't a McCartney three before now. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, that perfect, perfect description of it and why he went this route with it. And I got to say that um, each one uh, definitely has a stamp of his production style or at least his growth from mm-hmm. from each previous era that he was involved with. Because McCartney, the first one from 1970, really does have a different feel than the Beatles in it, other than maybe I'm amazed. Other than that, everything else off that album feels kind of McCartney-ish. I mean, just like... Uh, this is McCartney taking on his own personality aspect. And the second one was also him kind of breaking from that kind of pop realm into kind of just like getting into the McCartneyism of just him and his guitar, him and his music. Really good. This one feels the same way too, where it's just mm-hmm. like him 
getting down to it. It feels very guitar based, except for a couple of piano pieces. But there really is like it feels like just him and his guitar going along with it. And it feels fantastic. Yep. So what do you think of this album cover before we get into each track? You know, I generally like it. I, I dig it is actually the words that I wrote on here. So I dig it, nice. dude. You know, so going back yep. to the 60s. Um, love the love the dice concept, actually, for for that. Because the first one was a uh, a table with, like, a bowl of fruit on it um, that kind of symbolized, I think, the apple breakup and all the Beatles and stuff like that. The second one was just a picture of him. And then this one shows just the dice hanging up there. Um, love the black top kind of fading or diving into the reflective silver. Mm-hmm. It looks so good. looks futuristic, um, especially with that McCartney font that's at the top here. looks yep. really kind of cool. looks futuristic without being too kind of like fake spacey or idealistic spacey. It kind of looks like it's something new. Looks mm-hmm. something sharp. Um, mm-hmm. It feels kind of Justin Timberlakey for some reason to me. Like I feel like there's, there's because there's concepts of him. I think throughout the album that kind of pop in, in in the production side, where I think really this feels like it's a a cool hand. It feels like it's somebody that's got something coming right there. You know, um, just feels sexy. You know, to me it, for what it is, and yeah. it's simple. Yeah. It, it is simplicity at its finest. One thing that stood out to me that I really like, and you mentioned the font, but I also like the the small C in McCartney is positioned <laughs> as a superscript and not a subscript. So the way like in the English language we would write yep. McCartney like MCC is this first C is lowercase sandwiched in between the uppercase M and the uppercase C. But in this one, it's positioned at the top of the line. So it's a lowercase c, yeah. but it's positioned in line with the top of the M and the top of the C rather than just being put on the same line as all the other lowercase letters. So I thought that was really cool. I'm glad you called it silver because I had written like that cool transition from black to murky blue. Murky <laughs> blue is just uh, not as sexy yeah, as well, it, it is on the left. I can see that murky blue on the left, but the right-hand side definitely has a little more whiteness to it where yep. it, it should be silver. <laughs> yep. But I see that and, blue that you're talking about. And then you see the reflection of the dye in there. And, yeah. and then there's just that subtle, you can see the light from the camera or the lighting uh, on the dye. And you just see those three little dashes in the black part of the dye where yeah. the light is coming from. So that that's really cool. Just kind of a very like crisp clear picture so yeah pretty pretty cool piece of album cover art yeah you know and that's the one thing i wanted to the run by you real quick is that do you think those are intentional in there because the way that i saw them and it's me playing with my mixer quite a bit the last uh, couple of weeks but i wondered if those those dials are like set to zero you know like is that meant to be like set to zero because, oh, I didn't even notice them as like dials. Yeah, so like dials just in the in the studio oh, yeah. where I'm thinking to myself they're set to zero. Uh, I wonder if that was purposeful or if they just got lucky like McCartney usually does on a lot of his album covers, uh, yeah, especially Dame Back to the be Beatles. Too. But it looks pretty fucking sweet though. I like it, especially yeah. the, the the reflection is really cool because it cuts the three in half on the reflection. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready? Oh wait 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 wait. It's been a long-tailed winter bird since I've had this. So let's rock and roll, baby! Track number one, long-tailed winter bird. (laughs) 
yeah, generally this is this is actually a cool way to start the uh, the, the album off. It's got that initial riff and the carry of that note after the riff holds after one pass just kind of mm-hmm. gets blended in with that like some sort of like harmonium note or whatever's being played at the end the back end and it sounds really cool before he jumps back into it. Yeah, I think from a guitar player's perspective, I'm pretty sure he's jamming on that B string, so the second string, and what you're hearing that open resin note is resonating note is the open E string at the very bottom. Ooh. And so that's where you're getting, you know, he's sliding up and down. Mm-hmm. So that's where that sound is coming from. But I got to admit, I was not expecting a jam to start off the album. I just not that I have a lot of experience I, with Paul McCartney, but I just didn't anticipate this to start it off. Yeah, you know, it definitely is. It, normally, he starts off with a rocker or some sort of statement song. Usually, uh, not to say that this isn't a statement song in itself, because it's something new. It's something driving. But if you listen to the production value of this, this is something unprecedented with uh, with with Maca right here, where it really is spatial in its sound. But it's so heavy in what each one is. Each part that comes in has a heaviness with it. Mm. Yeah, like that heaviness in the bass. You hear that yes. bass trickle in at like one or 51 seconds. Just a little tease there. Very Paul kind of sounding riff on mm-hmm. there. Yeah, there's a heaviness to that when it comes in. Oh, yeah. I really like uh, when his vocals really come in. It's... It's shocking because one, we'll get we'll get in talking to his vocals, obviously, as we do with every episode. <laughs> I know we always say that we'll get into the vocals later, but we always yeah. end up doing it anyway. So it's it's just hilarious. But with his vocals, especially being almost eighty, he's still very good vocally. But in this song, at what is it, right around like one twenty, one twenty five, when he kicks in, yep. um, very industrial. It's very electronic it's very in the background compared to the music so it's it's like it's not meant to be out front it's just part it's meant to be more musical even though he is actually speaking you know actual lyrics right the lyrics are kind of hard to understand and there's some misheard lyrics for me right in there he's saying do you do do you do you miss me or that's how the lyrics are printed off but yeah. it really sounds like he's saying, do you, do, do, do is me. <laughs> I don't hear, do you miss me at all. I hear, do is me. Did he uh, want to kiss that guy? He might have. <laughs> well, Paul probably did because, you know, he was a Jimmy fan. No, he was a Jimmy fan. Still love that fact that Sergeant Pepper came out on a Friday and Sunday night. McCartney went to go see Jimi Hendrix, and Jimi Hendrix was playing Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> yeah. That's a great story. More heaviness when those drums kick in at 145. Oh, this God. really got my head bobbing for sure. I love the way that snare drum pops. It's just so crisp. Oh, definitely. And it's one of those things where it, it's a great lead-in into having that riff kind of kick right back in at 155. Yep. And it's 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 it sounds more siren-y, so it's like very sharp. It's a little more... It's it's laid off on the beefiness and it's gone for the sharpness and it just yep. really sounds so natural and it f- sounds slightly progressive like it's actually learning something throughout the song. Yep, and that cool little instrument you're hearing there—that's the harmonium. Yep. 
I had not heard of a harmonium until I did this podcast review. And basically, it's kind of like an accordion, but it sits on the ground and you play it like a piano, but there's like an air pump to it that's similar to an accordion that you would play or a concertina, but then you play the keys, so that was kind of interesting. I hadn't heard of that before, but Paul Paul leans on some kind of out there obscure instruments in this one, and I'll talk a lot more about that as we go on. Well, obviously, I haven't done my Beatles uh, do justice then on this website, on this website, on this podcast then, because that's what the opening instrument is on uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm. So there's a lot of Sergeant Pepperness in here that I actually do talk about, which is at 340. Yeah. There's the background sounds that's really yep. tap into the Sergeant Pepper Magical Mystery Tour era. Um, and it's worked out of the harmonium, and it's just absolutely delicious there. And yep. it's just ever so lightly in the background. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yep, and it sounds so fantastic. Like I, when I first listened to it, you can't hear it when you're just doing it in the background. You do have to have that mm-hmm. the, the headphones on for it. But it's absolutely fantastic, yep. and it's like, damn, going back some magical mystery tour almost. Yeah, in in this at this part of the song, I felt like maybe it was droning on a little bit. Like the song to me felt like it maybe could have been two minutes shorter, coming in right around three minutes. But that, I mean, that's really the only critique, but it, it's still kind of a fun, cool jam. And it really does set the tone for this album. And there's it's not a generic throwaway song. And none of these songs on this album are, which, you know, I didn't know what to expect, because sometimes you get artists who get up there in age. You know, Paul's I mean, he, he's great. He's 78 years old, so he's not that old. But some artists, when they get to that age, it seems like when they put out new music, it's just kind of eh. But this is not eh, not at all. No, definitely. And um, one of the cool things, especially being a Beatles fan or a McCartney fan, is that, you know, at, at moments like 413, when you're listening to that drum pattern and the roll coming in at around like 435 throughout his history, it's like I know, I like I can hear Ringo doing his stuff. And McCartney in this aspect, I mean, that's just like his typical drum sound like the the way that he's doing it, the feeling of it behind the kit, it's mm-hmm. just absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, definitely a, a great kicker off to this album. It's like a great way to for McCartney to say he's finding his way almost. Yeah, and as that song ends, going into that song, I just like the little vocal outtake. You can hear him say, "You can cut it." I'm pretty sure that's what he yeah. says. Like you can cut the track. And See, then that's I like. I liked I liked the drumstick drops like he was yeah boom like he hit he knew yep. he hit it you know that was it that was it <laughs> so track number two is find my exactly. way. Well, I can find my way. I know my left from right because we never close. I'm open day and so speaking of obscure instruments, here's where the harpsichord comes into play at the opening oh, yeah. of this song. Yeah, it's kind of got that powerful pop kind of chord strike kind of going on. Mm-hmm. It re- reminds me of like the the way that the Badfinger in the 70s were doing it. So yeah. definitely, definitely kind of just got like some good, good strength behind it. Yeah, pop is a good way of calling it, too, because like this is a pretty upbeat song. I think more than I had anticipated as well for this one. It's just kind of got that feel good sound to it he does a really cool job though with his vocals because he does that speech level singing in the verse and then when he gets into the chorus 
it really opens up and he hits that falsetto like pretty good like he still got it man his vocals sound really good yeah definitely this one was the first one that's kind of clean the first song was kind of a little bit uh little muffled in, in, in with the music but uh one of his best vocal parts here is kind of a I mean, going back to the pop concept aspect at 102, how do you not love that? Ooh, oh yeah, oh yeah, peace. You know, a bit of innocence is brought out with it. Kind of a yep. lighthearted kind of a way to do it. And it still sounds pretty good with his vocals. It does really sound good. One sound that I'm a fan is right after that. So 110, you have this like horn synth come in. Horns weren't credited on the any of the information that I saw so I think it might just all be synth generated yeah. but one thing you're hearing in there too is um, he's using a Moog bass synthesizer and that's what makes that really cool sound at about 118 and it does that like it like dribbles out it's like and I'm pretty sure that's the bass, bass synth that you're hearing. And that creates a really cool sound. And it sent me down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out what this instrument was. And I'm not a gearhead. <laughs> like, I don't geek out to gear that much. But for some reason, this caught my ear. So I just started looking up Moog basses. And I don't know if he's using a newer one or an older one. Because some older ones had, like, foot pedals were used by, oh, like, yeah. Rush and bands like that. But there's this new one. There's like a, It's called, like, a mini tar. Moog bass synthesizer is like five hundred dollars. I'm like, I want that, but nice. Maybe some other day. Oh, I wonder if it's like the harmonium where he still has got the original one from Abbey Road that he, they used on. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm curious on that. Just I wonder if he's what kind of gear he has. If it, is it a lot of the original stuff? Does he get new stuff? Is it a little bit of both? Which is probably the right answer. Yeah. Well, if you yeah, I I I I, I wonder because he is he's not a gearhead himself, right? So it's, it, but yet he is sentimental more or less. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it would probably play into play into. He did describe himself as a, a keeper in one of the interviews that I read. He said, it's not a hoarder, but he said, because he grew up poor, like they just, they always kept, he always kept things because he just had that mindset drilled into him as a kid. Like you never know when you might lose it sort of thing. So he said he like would keep all like little toys that he'd get, you know, from like catalogs or whatever that, sent things or whatever but so you know wouldn't be surprising to me to find out that he has kept most of the gear that he's been able to keep to this day and is using a lot of that you know in addition to mixing in the new stuff because his sound has evolved a lot over the years and he's gotten experimental here and there so i'm sure he's acquired a bunch of gear along the way but i'm curious what he owns and what he has and what he has access to yeah well he did buy a a left-handed uh les paul uh, from Willie's guitar here in St. Paul, about like 1995-ish. And uh, we believe that's to be my dad's because my dad had a custom 1970-1971 uh, Les Paul with black with gold trim. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't ever made left-handed guitars until like it was more custom in like the 80s. And so this was a 70s Les Paul that he bought from uh Willie's guitar in St. Paul and we think it's my dad's. No so he shit. is he is a collector <laughs> of old guitars and he goes anywhere from and that's included here. So I I've always wanted to send him a, a letter so maybe we can put this out as a plea or something. Give me my dad's guitar back Paul or just you know <laughs> yeah see if you can even confirm that it's the guitar. That'd be cool enough. Be like keep the guitar. I just want exactly. to know if it's the guitar. I know. And that's the worst part too is that those those Les Pauls when my dad got it um they didn't keep they didn't keep uh, catalog uh, 
catalogization um, until like 73, 74. Mm. So it, it would be very difficult to kind of prove it, but it'd be sweet if it was. That'd be really cool. I want to find my way back to my dad's guitar. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So this song is pretty lyrically simple. Verse two yeah. is basically just a repeat. Well, I can find my way. I know my left from right because we never close. I'm open day and night. Same thing over and over. Chorus is the same too. Sings that every other verse. I know my way around. I walk towards the light. I'm open around the clock. I don't get lost at night. Yeah, I wrote for my lyric uh, comment. Lyrically kind of weak, dot, dot, dot. The same repeating two verses and chorus. Eh. Yeah, lyrically it's okay. I mean, it's kind of got a a cool theme, I guess, of like being there, but you know, able to find his way kind of thing. But yeah, lyrically it's, it's kind of simple, but there's some cool, some cool music stuff and you really hear all those different instruments. And I like that little jam medley that comes in at about two fifty, and that's kind of, you start with like the, the bass synth dribbling in. There's a nice big pause there, which I'm always a fan of to like set the stage. And so everything stops right before 250 and then boom, that jam starts and you hear the bass synth and then the electric guitars come in, the bass comes in and just ends on that sweet bass synth again. Yeah, it goes from like pop to kind of like a playful psychedelic almost. I really like the playfulness of this. This song really is more all about the music and the, the delivery of the pop aspect to it. You know, it's definitely... Not meant for pretty boys. It's meant for pretty boys, I think. Yeah, it's a pretty boy song. Track number three is Pretty Boys. Look into my lens. So, Give me all you got. Got a pretty heavy reverb, uh, kind of acoustic guitar here, and his vocals are kind of got the reverb going on to him. Uh, good to hear him kind of go to that acoustic, though. Yep. Um, early on in this uh, jam, it's it's really good. This is the McCartney that I really enjoy. Um, I'm, I'm definitely more of a acoustic and somebody on their own kind of a person. Like, I... I do like that unplugged aspect of it, even mm-hmm. though you know they're in the studio here doing this. But he especially, McCartney especially, is feels special uh, seeing him with just his acoustic. I really like this song because of its content and really what it's about. He's really telling a story here. Specifically, it was yeah. inspired by photographers and basically the way they were treated as the Beatles by photographers. He spells it out right away when he's looking into my lens. Give me all you got. Work it for me, baby. Let me take my best shot. And then yeah. in the chorus, when he says, meet the pretty boys, presuming the Beatles, a line of bicycles for hire, which is basically something to be used, which, you know, he re- was referencing like the bikes that you see today in cities where it's the bank of bikes and you can go up and just rent one for a half hour, an hour or whatever, so, you know, something to be used. And then objects of desire, objectifying them, working for the squire. So basically they're working for the, the gentry class, the record companies who are making all the money. Uh, you can look, mm-hmm. but you better not touch. So he really, he really spells it out, and you know, he's. It's almost like a. It's almost kind of resentful in a way, the way he's delivering this one. Oh, totally, and you know, if you go back to, um, if you ever want to watch some fun footage, it's, um, it's when the Beatles were, going from New York City to Washington D.C. when they were first arrived in in 1964. And they're on that train, and Ringo is making fun of all the cameramen by carrying all their cameras and just, like, posing as them. The Beatles are just laughing. Everybody else is kind of laughing with them. 
but the Beatles are just doing it to you know calm themselves a bit. So it's really cool, and this song definitely fits that memory quite a bit. And if you really want to talk about Beatles nostalgia, kind of in here at 39 seconds, listen to this guitar tone that pops in at 39 seconds, because that goes back to Abbey Road, and she came in through the bathroom window, and not the not the riff itself, but the tone in there, and it's just has been a tone that I've always loved, and it really is is a sweet touch here. Definitely in Abbey Road is more for rock and roll, and, and like definitely more punchy kind of a thing yep this one it's just used in a nice melodic beautiful droning kind of a way very well executed mm-hmm. yeah he after right after that guitar t- after 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 that guitar tone at 56 seconds he also says the line they can talk but they never say much and yeah. that kind of goes back to what you were doing talking about with the joking and and that's what they did was I think they just joked around because it, obviously they were all very articulate when you hear them talking interviews real interviews quote unquote you know they always downplayed the press and and Dylan did the same thing at the same time like I think they just wanted to avoid that corporatism the monetization the beyond their control being used I think they felt that so I think that's why when they talked with the press like they could talk but they never say much because they never really said anything they just kind of joked around well, more or less for the Beatles aspect, um, I couldn't say speak for Bob Dylan, unfortunately. But for Beatles, they were always asked mundane questions. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, when are you getting a haircut? And they're like, "You asked me that like two years ago." You know, it's like, "What? What's the joke here?" You right. Know? And so that's definitely where they're coming. And yep. one thing I did want to say off of the lyrics though is, I love the concept of um, churning the lens around. Beautiful, you know that that turning it around on the photographers and the media kind of like what we're talking about and that's it's just a nice little touch of kind of just throwing around one thing i did wonder he never he didn't do for this one which i thought would be kind of a cool aspect was adding kind of like camera effects like clicks and things Mm. you know like kind of adding those sound effects that's normally like a mccartney touch throughout his career of adding like things that would uh sound you know, he would use instruments to make sounds of like a topic he was talking about, mm-hmm. especially in Old Woman, Old Why, when he did that song. It was meant to the drums that he specifically hit at a, you know, at the right levels it was meant to sound like a gunshot and stuff like that. And like, you know, the woman's hunting him down. Mm-hmm. I would have thought like adding some of those clicks in here would have been really, really wonderful. But it does not take away from the song at all. But I, it was one of those aspects that I kind of always heard throughout his career yeah. that I thought he would add here. Overall, this song is is pretty simple, and I, it's a good song. I'm a fan of the content, and you know, it's just kind of a easygoing song. It, it was one of those initially. I think I kind of passed over when I first listened. Like I heard "Pretty Boys" when I was just kind of passively listening, and so I assumed I don't know if it was about the Beatles or maybe like he was talking about newer, younger people. And so it was just kind of like, oh, okay. But when I really dove into the song, is when I really started to like it. When I learned the meaning behind the song. Yeah, definitely. And when it took me to my fourth listen, when I was actually really studying the lyrics a little more deeply, that it really brought back that nostalgia because, okay, I oh, I see what you're talking about, you mm-hmm. know. So it definitely a nice, uh, nice little slow roller here. I mean, many, many, many people would love it. Yep. Across sex and genders and all that. Including women and wives, perhaps? Possibly. Track number four. Women and Wives. 
So you had mentioned a certain person earlier today uh, in our This Week in Music, Dan Wilson. And to me, this kind of feels like that that type of uh, uh, writing almost with that nice crawling piano piece mm. in the beginning. But it's kind of like, it's like, sounds melancholy almost at first. Yeah. I That's a good call out. I did not pick that out myself. But yeah. I did pick out the piano part and it just... At this point in the album, we're only four tracks <laughs> in, but it, it's a new, it's something new. It's a new yeah. fresh sound for track four with going with the piano ballad. It's rather captivating yeah. too. It, it it sounds like he's directly talking to me or to you, the listener, the way he's just regurgitating. You know, he's basically giving advice here and saying, you know, people will follow your example create a better future for those who are to come and it, it just sounds like he's really talking to you so like you hear it and you're like oh yeah. i feel like he's really like trying to get through to me ringer in chicago and coming all the way from england thanks paul can you get can you get this guitar to jesse's dad <laughs> do, you, do you have do you still have that that gibson guitar that you got in like the 80s or whatever oh, it's left-handed shit, that's great <laughs> No, but to speak off of your what he, when he's speaking to you, I want to talk about his, his, the opening verses here and his delivery, which kind of really does give you that sense that he is talking to you. But listen to the powerfulness of his vocals. Again, his, his, his vocals are taking a step up now. We're in the fourth song already. And really, you're beginning to hear his vocal a little more raw. Mm-hmm. Um I really think this is one of his better vocal performances of, of, of the song, of the whole album, excuse mm-hmm. me, um, where it just feels more natural. Yeah. It, and powerful. It does have that natural sound to his voice. I like the drums, too. They just give it just a bit of a kick, and they're pretty similar throughout the whole song. It just it has this kind of sweeping sound to it. And I it, he's probably playing with steel brushes on that snare. Yeah. But it's just a simple sound, but it, it get, gives it just a little more power to carry it through. So it's not just the piano and his vocals. There's this steel drum brush, too. And I think that really adds a character to the song that would be missing if it wasn't there. One of the one of the better lead-ups in the song, or at least one of the standout points for me, was definitely at around the, the one, uh, 104 part here, where it's the ramp-up to the bridge. And it, it kind of just kicks in and that drum shuffles in and most of the mu- music kind of stays the same but his vocals just kind of he brings a different delivery to that as well and it feels like it's more important than the rest of the song that is in here and I really I just really enjoy this bridge quite a bit here pulling up the lyrics here um, where he says when tomorrow comes around you'll be looking at the future so keep your feet upon the ground and get ready to run, you know, and that's kind of like, uh, uh definitely be patient, mm-hmm. but when it's here, just be ready, you yep. know, and, and I, I really love that. And I don't know, that's the beauty of McCartney throughout his whole career. He's still writing songs that feel good, mm-hmm. that feel like you just said, he's talking to you. Yeah. I mean, it, that's pretty powerful, yep. even at 78 and he's been doing it for 60 years. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. And this song is simple. It does have a little ominous yeah. tone to it. Like, it's a, supposed to be a pretty positive, upbeat song when he says, what we do with our lives seems to matter to others. But there's almost like this hint of, be careful, because if you don't, 
like things yeah. could end up bad. Like you got to leave a good world for people to come, but you also have to help them get there. And there's just this underlying tone to me that's like, you know, it's almost ominous of a warning of like, but if you don't, like, you're going to fuck things up. No, totally. You know, but there is a weird thing. When we get to the end here, I do like the sound of that ending. It does feel like it's rounding out the sound. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like it's truly wrapping up the song where, you know, there are some songs that are forced, you know, or... You know, there are a lot of songs on, on this album that do stretch kind of a little bit long. Yep. This one definitely didn't, but no. I also wouldn't have minded if this one kind of kept going, to be honest with you. But it actually does round out pretty nicely for what it is. It does, and it rounds out and gets kicking really into this next track, which is actually the shortest track on the album. Oh, yeah. It kicks up in the, uh, in the old lavatory. <laughs> track number five <laughs> is Lavatory Lil. This freshens up again, like we went from that piano ballad, now we got kind of a blues rocker. Yeah, this this kind of brings me back to like uh, Helen's Wheels with uh, wings and shit like that. Mm. So it definitely has this more heavy oomph to it, yep. uh, where it's a cool little pick-me-up after that little melancholy yeah. piece there, you know? Yeah, it's... It's simple, but there's some complexity to it. You can kind of feel some anger in there. So Lavatory Lil is a character. It's basically a parody of someone that he knew in real life. And he kind of outlines it here throughout those first few verses when he says, you think that she's a winner when she's cooking you dinner, but really, but she's really moving in for the kill. And then at 36 seconds, he says, she says it's hunky-dory when she's telling you a story, but really, she thinks you're making her ill. And then again at 125, this really says it all when he says, you think she's being friendly, but she's looking for a Bentley and she'd rather go and swallow a pill. And so this (laughs) obviously is just based off someone. He said, this is someone that she was someone we rubbed up against. You get a few of them in life. These people who screw you over. So I made her into a song character. And here we are with Lavatory <laughs> Lil. Yeah, yeah, it's just that's just you know it's just crazy. It reminds me because it's the same amount of uh, syllables as uh, my uh, my one song that I brought to uh, my buddies Alex and Ian one time when we were jamming and it was pedophile pill, pedophile Phil. <laughs> and then Alex the drummer goes, "Oh, that sounds like Tool." And I kind of said, "Okay, I'll scrap this song." And then you know the next week I brought another song in, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Yeah, it sounds like Tool." And then I thought to myself. Well, shit, maybe I should be scrapping all these songs because everyone sounds like Tool to him, you know? (laughs) So now you can understand where some of my hatred for Tool comes from. I guess so. And it comes from Pedophile Phil. Another cool... Just like Lavatory Will. Another cool (laughs) thing about this song is he did the vocal in one take. So he just stuck with the first take that he did. Said, didn't really want to polish or posh it up. Just kind of wanted this to be a, a gritty, raw blues song. And after that first take, he's like, yep, that was good. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, the guitar solo is, is really good in there, about, like, one minute in, 59 seconds. Uh, really, it, this is just a pretty quick, straightforward jam, just as you're saying with, with his vocal performance. I can imagine this probably only took him a day or two just to mm-hmm. kind of, like, put together and just jam because bass is simple, the guitar is just rocking, uh, you know, the melody is simple, it, just fantastic all around. Not to say that the simplicity is bad, but 
it sounds really good actually yeah i think it does exactly what it's supposed to do where it is on the album it's a fun pick me up it's probably just a pretty fun song to play and jam along to too and it doesn't have to be anything more than that and he talks about that a lot too he's like yeah some songs are just the song that they are there's not much else to read into it so it's a fun little one about someone who he didn't like from his past and here we are rocking out for two minutes and 22 seconds yeah there is no really deep feeling behind it and that's okay track number six deep deep feeling that's the main reason I said that (laughs) you know that deep deep feeling when you love someone so so I love this I gotta say, is this the is this the notes that I wrote in here? I don't know. At one point, I wrote notes in here that saying that, holy shit! I mean, McCartney, I want him to produce, and engineer all my drums for my album mm-hmm. that I'm doing, because this beginning is exactly how I kind of want to do a couple of mine. So clean but powerful that opening, deep feeling. Yeah, it's yeah. in your bass drum, man. That is absolutely a wonderful mix. Yep. Yeah, you feel that kick and those. I think yeah. he's probably playing two floor toms there. Then the piano trickles in around 40 seconds. And then at about 50, you get the addition oh, of the snare drum that pops in. Burst. It's really cool how he just slowly builds and builds and builds. And you really you have that deep, deep feeling. Burst. And then you get to like 108 and that hi-hat comes in, just really mm. emphasizing that deep, deep pain that he's singing about. I got to admit, when I first heard this, I was working in my basement and had it in the background, and I really thought it was him. This is where the Justin Timberlake kind of like really kicked in for me. It's really R&B pop, but it's hmm. it really kind of even has a touch of like boublier almost, you know? It's really, I, it, it's a weird sound to me where I'm like, I don't think it's McCartney. Uh, and this is like, rains, that's the best thing about McCartney is that he comes out with shit like this. It's really a good feeling in this beginning. At 138, so there's another yeah, yeah. another instrument that yeah, comes yeah. to play here. This is this time it's the Mellotron's turn to shine, and you can really hear it just kind of sitting back behind that guitar as it's doing its thing, very subtle, just boop, boop, just kind of doing its thing. But he just does brings a lot of cool different instruments into this, and just kind of yeah. lets them set up, but they don't overpower, they don't take away but they sound cool, you know, it sounds like, oh, maybe just a piano or whatever, but they're all kind of these unique instruments. It's kind of like waves on the beach almost where they come in at different intervals mm, yeah. and, and different lengths and stuff like that. That's exactly what it is. And my note was, uh, it's just the sound artist that is Paul McCartney coming out yeah. in, in that aspect. Yep. It really is. Yep. Um, if you get to about 227, yep. there is this wonderful transition that just kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a marathon of a song, oh, and so it, yeah. we, we get this new movement here at 227 that kind of opens up and, and starts the next movement of the song. Yeah, this is to me, this is kind of where I felt, um, I just really felt the production quality is what drives this aspect. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it just, it kind of cleans up a little bit, and it's kind of more in focus yeah. almost for this section. Yeah. I like the line that he says here that he's repeating over and he's saying, sometimes I wish it would stay. Sometimes I wish it would go away. And it's kind of illustrating the complex relationship we have as humans with emotion. And sometimes it's important to embrace the pain and the hurt 
in order to heal rather than deny that pain or push it away and i think that's at least that's how i interpret what he's saying here sometimes i wish it would stay you know almost in a way of like you want to feel that pain even though it hurts and then other times you're just like no i'm i'm fucking done with this like i want it to go away i was i was thinking covid (laughs) (laughs) just because i want that son of a bitch to get a fuck away here you know and it's definitely emotional why would he want that (laughs) why would he wish sometimes for covid to stay So you can make McCartney 4? Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I had a little bit too much weed at the time when I was thinking of it. Might happen. That happens. Next cool part for me is at 3.30, you kind of get this middle section jam here. And it really just rests on this lead guitar. Oh. You mean David Gilmore? Yep. I even have that. It's like, this is very Pink Floyd-like, and it's just letting David Gilmore run. That's funny. I'm glad you said that because I had the same thought. The solo is, it's, and this is again where production and mixing goes in really well. I just love how well it's mixed in with the instrumental piece mm-hmm. where it's that ghost feeling of Pink Floyd. Yeah. It's just really good. Yeah. And I mean, that's Paul on the guitar too. Like, he just doesn't strike me as a guy. Not that this is a rip roared solo or anything, but this just seems like he would have someone come in and do the guitar part for this, you know? Yeah, it's not like it's not like the normal kind of McCartney solo that you would actually get, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that this is what's kind of like, you know, it makes you just go, "Fuck, man, this guy is a talented motherfucker." Yeah, he really is because right. of the, di- the different dimensions he can go into. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of transition out of that at four thirty, and then like into that five thirty mark into the, like the 615 you start to really get this transition so over like two minutes it's kind of the slow transition into this new sound and the song slows down like really once yeah. you get to that 615 point and it gets kind of trippy even there's a heavy reverb on the vocals the maracas it almost sounds like he's saying chirp chirp in your right ear i'm not sure if that snaps or if it's a voice but it sounds really cool a lot of stuff happening here yeah, that's that's probably most likely him going to be doing like some vocal sounds and stuff like that for sure. Where uh, uh, he's just so famous for doing that, um, uh, especially in like "I Will" off of uh, off of the White Album, where he's singing the bass line, you know. Mm-hmm. So he he does that a lot. Yep. One one for me. So near the end, when we get to near the end, it's still like a minute <laughs> away. But seven fourteen yep. in. Yep. There's that quick fade, which fades into the acoustic guitar interlude yeah yeah the song like straight up restarts it kind of does like it almost is set up in like reverse almost Mm -hmm. like he ends on this bare barren spot but it's one of the more good parts about it i really like his backing vocals in this aspect too yeah this one caught me off guard too those first couple listens because at first I was like, did the song just restart? Like, what, did I do something wrong? Did I hit the skip button? What did I, did, what happened? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there's no acoustic guitar in the beginning of this song. I went back to confirm that. And so, even though it sounds like it restarts, like, he doesn't sing that melody with the acoustic guitar up until this point. But it sounds like the whole song just restarts. Pretty much, yeah. So at 7.56... I love that little piano piece that kicks in. Mm-hmm. And you hear it more in the left channel. 
Yeah, more. It's it is center. Okay, it's a little bit centered, but it gives me a sense of temples. It's all coming out. Yep. It's all coming out. Yep. Oh, it sounds so much like that. I'm just like, I wonder if he was listening because he should listen to temples. Yeah. They're fucking phenomenal. Yeah. But that's that was a nice little cleaner piano sounding that we were hearing earlier yep. and stuff. So it's definitely. This piece goes for eight minutes and twenty five seconds, and how do you feel about its length? I am pretty much indifferent to it, actually. Like I don't mind it. I'm I'm totally down for it. I'm a fan yeah, of this I, one. I feel like this had many transitions. I felt like it it touched a lot of different areas that one I'm not accustomed to McCartney even dabbling into, but yep. it's also a wonderfully mixed piece. You know, I mean, shit. I guarantee you, if I would have played this for my Pink Floyd friend, he'd be like. If I told him that Gilmore played on this, he'd be like, oh, yeah. Right. I, I 100% yeah. guarantee you. Yeah. That, like, he fucking found a good sound there that just really mixed well on this song. So, great. That one has, that one's got my most stars for favorite song. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's up there for Just because it's fantastic. Too. Yeah. It's, it, it's definitely not going to be sliding from that position. I don't think so. Track number seven is sliding. Yeah, they didn't see that Speaking of not seeing this coming, this is another rocker. So mm-hmm. a couple ra- rockers sandwiching in the longest song of the of the of the album. This one comes with the beef, yeah, much more than the Lavatory Lil one, but yep. definitely kind of brings me back to that Wings seventy era again with the heaviness, the the kind of seventy seven, mm-hmm. seventy eight Wings. There's some modern sound that I get out of this too. And specifically, I'm hearing some Arctic Monkeys in this riff. Yeah. It's got a similar tone in the guitar. The melodic structure Ooh. of the rhythm is very similar. You know, I was just waiting for Alex Turner to jump in with his bassy vocal and start singing something. <laughs> but it really gets kind of Arctic Monkey-y right around 40 se- 48 seconds when he sings the line, but I know that I could die trying because he plays it in lockstep with the guitar. So there's like the bam, bam. And then he hits that note or the, the melody line and sings it. That's very Arctic monkeys. That's something you hear a lot on like their, the album AM like that's, it's a really cool sound. I was like, Oh damn, I'm digging this. It's heavy. It's, it carries that weight and the emotion of deep, deep feeling, but it brings it in a whole new way. Yeah, I think the the guitar tone and the vocals rolling together like that over that phrase is absolutely one of the highlights of this. It's just such a rocking fucking feeling with that. Yep. It just it makes you want to keep singing it, and it it, it it is the greatest takeaway from this song. Other than that, two eleven with that really good guitar solo. Yeah, I I like the mellowness of it, and it just oh the the duo. Uh, it duoing of it is just fantastic. Yeah, it's a really cool solo. It's, in my opinion, like the first real solo. Like I know there was that little solo in Lavatory Lil, but to me this yeah. is like, and I guess if you want to count that deep, deep feeling part, but this one is like where the solo is a big part of the song. And there's a lot of cool effects on here. The delay, the reverse effects, that tone just rips right through your ears, man. It's so trippy. And if you told me this was another guitar player, not Paul McCartney, I'd also believe you because I just don't think of Paul McCartney as a guitar player like this. Yeah. Do you, you know, if you, I mean, there are 
we should do like a whole like episode of like like Beatles guitarist because you'll be surprised how many times actually McCartney is the lead guitarist yeah. on a lot of their songs. Yeah. So it does it he does know how to do it. I'm digging to usually this the chorus that comes in that rips in right after and throughout this song because this one the production on it is phenomenal it sounds so cool and it really you feel the way that guitar reverberates in your head you feel like you're just sliding and gliding around through the air oh yeah that one is a that is a great sound right there in a in a cool thing about this one is so this song came from a sound check jam you just like to do jams during sound check just to give the sound mixer an idea of like what his guitar sounds like. And they originally recorded this for his last album, Egypt Station, which came out in 2018, but it just didn't work yep. out with the band. And so he kind of saved this one, put it in his pocket and dug it out now. And it sounds like seemingly it would be about drugs, but really he said, and there's a quote on this one, he said, I would listen to the Winter Olympics and hear the announcers say sliding. I just thought it was a great, nice name for all of those, a group of name for all of that. So he's talking about like, you know, all those winter sports. And then I started thinking of snowboarders and skiers and that became the song sliding. So, okay, now <laughs> that's that. So they would have played that on the 2017 tour then. Um, because there was a new song when I saw them at the Target Center that they played, and it was Slide. Mm. But I don't think it was titled that okay. at the time. Because if if Egypt came out in 2018, they would have been playing in 2017. That's material, just trying out new songs. That's probably what it was then. And this that, is the only I, song. This song, this is the only song that I remember that I when I listened to it the first time where I thought I've heard it before. And that that makes sense too, because it may I don't know if it was pre-recorded or if it was recorded for this session, but this is the only song to feature other musicians. So it features Rusty Anderson, who is Paul McCartney's longtime guitar player, yep. and then Abe Laboriel Jr. on the drums, who's also been his longtime drummer. So I don't know if they recorded this for that Egypt station session and he took it for this one, or if he re-recorded those parts and brought those guys in. I'm not quite sure, but yeah, so that makes sense. Like, they probably were maybe jamming on this one live, too. Yeah, they had to. Oh, because this song's, it, this song's awesome. This yeah. one is also, this one's got two stars for me. Yeah, so. this one is maybe my favorite. It's close. Between Deep, Deep Feeling, this song, and the next song we're actually about to talk about are all kind of three of my top Ooh. songs. So you had a little uh, little uh, love struck from The Kiss of Venus, I did, didn't you? I did. Track number eight is The Kiss of Venus. Beds in love. I, I, I don't blame you, though, Ben, for uh, loving this one because, again, this brings McCartney back to his acoustic. Mm-hmm. I just really love the playfulness of this one. It's, it is a gorgeous little melody that he has, and it's, again, pure McCartney, just him and the guitar. Yep, very classic Paul in this sound and you really hear that in that line when he says she scored a bullseye in the early morning glow and it just takes that quick little minor turn and this repeats throughout the whole song when he says like harmonic sound and it just does this little minor turn and it's just I love that sound and the way he performs that has executed that all of his song writing life no lyrically I really love it Uh, verse 3 there 
where he sings, now, now moving slowly, we circle through the square. Two passing planets in the sweet, sweet summer air. Sweet summer air. I just really love the aspect that he said, uh, the playfulness of the sh- of the shapes. We circle through the square. Mm. Just a wonderful, beautiful I- idea to throw in someone's head because how many times have you actually done that with your loved one whenever you've gone to you know, an open square area in the town, you know, it's just like, it's awesome. I I just love the playfulness of the words. Yeah. And I love the playfulness too, of the, basically the backup vocals that come in almost that kind of call and response, but it's just more of a repeating line. So like when he says early morning glow, harmonic sound, our secrets blown, sweet summer air. And that's why I did that. Like when you repeated it, cause it's just, it's so catchy. (laughs) My brain was just like, it like intuitively Intuitively felt that coming. And I just like automatically found myself repeating those same lines with him when I was listening back through this one. When I first saw the title, I was wondering if it actually played back all the way to one of his solo era, era, era song or albums, where it was Venus and Mars. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it has nothing to do with that. It so, actually, so, so I, this song, ahead. he said in an interview with Rolling Stone, he got a book from Jules Holland's wife, and it was about planets and movements and the synchronicity of it all. Oh, and it had cool phrases in it, like kiss of Venus and harmonic sound. So he just kind of wrote the song about that. And he said one day he was just noodling on the guitar and he kind of liked what he had. And he actually had to fight with himself to keep going because he just kind of had this part. He's just kind of like, okay, I'll come back to that. But he's like, he had to force himself to get back to it. Cause he was like, well, what else am I going to do? Just like put it on my phone and then go watch TV or something. And it was really cool to read that part specifically as a songwriter myself, just because yeah. I think we all have those yeah. same struggles of like you, you crank out a line or a progression or a melody and you kind of just are like, cool, that's cool. I'll come back to it later. But then it's not the same when you come back to it yeah. later and you almost just have to force yourself through it and get that song down or, or push a little further at least. So then you can come back and have more to build on the next time if you don't finish it there. Well, it's like I did in poetry class once where I told them I, I forced the third stanza and they're like, why would you do that? You know, why would you force right? And I said, hey, even dogs go back to their own vomit to eat the, tr- the good stuff out of yeah. it. You know, it's right. it kind of like yeah. the same thing with McCartney, except for his is more like saying, just get it done. You know, right. like I, I could see him. I could see him actually sitting there with the interviewer and going, oh, saw it off and just finish it, old chap. Right. You know, just like talk having that good confidence in yourself just to say just finish it right. you know who cares right. just finish Cause it that's, and that's good attitude to fucking it have. is cuz like that part of your brain cuz he was like what else am i going to do like i would put this down and then just go watch tv it's like i yeah. why would i you know just finish the damn song yep hey and, and so the coolest thing about this song this is the main reason why i love this song is that 219 yeah you get that little is that a harmonium? I think that's more. I think that's more harpsichord. Harpsichord. Yep. Harpsichord. Yes. And I, I got to admit, I don't. This is. This has peaks of magical mystery to it a little bit. Mm. And claw too. Oh so yeah. This song really has convinced me that uh, uh, he he was involved with claw too. <laughs> There's a lot of sounds that you hear from Paul. And you're like, God damn it. He was in Claw too. He is. He is. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sir Bogglesworth, that son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. <laughs> he just didn't seize the day too well with that. I guess not. Track number nine is Seize the Day. I kind of was feeling uh, uh, 
the uh, Help Me Stranger song from or mm. uh, uh, album from uh, Raconteurs with this opening yeah. piano piece. Man, this thing sounds so sexy to start the day. I just yeah. love it. Instant, instantly recognizable with that sound. That to me, it stands out. That's the Fender Rhodes electric piano the Rhodes. that you hear on there, and that's made famous by Billy Preston and his kick-ass soloing in Get Back and all the work that he did with the Beatles. It's just, it's got a cool vibrato sound to it, cool tremolo sound. But yeah, the raconteurs, that is very reminiscent of some of the work that they've done too. Good call. Oh, definitely. I, a very good side of Paul McCartney here, though. I I, I really got to admit, the, the slow induction, uh, introduction of kind of like the guitar uh, piece, it just lends for like more pop elements to kind of shine in this one. Mm-hmm. This one, I, was, I, I definitely would imagine, would try to be a single at some point. I could see that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm also not convinced. So we had David Gilmore on this earlier. I'm pretty sure that Brian May comes in on the guitar here and plays that little line at 21 seconds that kind of repeats throughout the song. What? He's not, he's not listed in this one. (laughs) Neither is David Gilmore. Oh, you bitch. <laughs> oh, you See dog, what I did there? you. You dog. You got me on that one. I love it. I loved it. Thank you. It does totally sound like that, though. Yep. Holy shit. Okay, 143, it kind of yeah. brings on this, like, kind of middle section that it's smooth and, and flawless in the transition, and it sounds so strong that it just, like drives perfectly into the the chant of uh, seize the day seize the day at the end of it yeah i really like this bridge part because there's a little hint of the beatles there the yeah. the striking chords but it, this bridge creates it's got a chaotic energy to it it's very masterful the way he does it and that chord strike on the word finally it's got a very like dissonant sound to it and then it all circles back because it, he just brings it all back together around two minutes the sky's clear and everything gets better again, you know, and you're able to seize the day. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great description of it. And right when he's done saying, you know, seize the day and kind of gets into the verse one there, I wrote a note on here. This totally sounds like plot two to me. (laughs) It's like he's trying to fit, like, the third McCartney in there going... Yeah, you know, I was glad too. Yep. I, I swear to God, this is just beautiful sounding, actually. It is. Yeah. It's, a really, it's a really nice song. I think this whole second half kicks a lot of ass. And actually, speaking of the second half, I want to ask you a question. It's not really related to this song, but so track number six and seven, Deep, Deep Feeling and Sliding, that's the way you listen on the digital album, but I'm looking at the vinyl releases and the um slide in and deep deep feeling are switched on the vinyl and i wanted to ask if you knew anything about that i mean maybe it has to do with time constraints for sides i'm not sure why else it that's probably the reason why they do it is there any other reason no um okay no i mean that would be the only reason is to fit it with on the vinyl um but are they on the same side? Are they on no, like side? No, they're on two different three. sides. They're on two different sides? Then, yeah, so... Uh, and it looks like look, so. what I'm looking at, so side A 
with Slidin on it as track number six comes in at 20 minutes and 47 seconds, which would mean that if Deep Deep Feeling were on that side, it would come in at 25 or six minutes, which what a vinyl record holds like 24 minutes or something like that. About 22, yeah. Okay. So um, that, that probably makes sense because side B is total length is 23.55. See, I would imagine they would do a Rival Sons with this one where mm. they would split in the three. So it'd be three, three-sided okay. albums. It just says side A and side B. But it does. Yeah, it doesn't really? say anything about a side C or a side three. That's nuts because if you're going to be flipping that, you also have deep, deep, or you have deep down, which is five right. minutes and 52 seconds. So why would you flip that? I don't know. But let's get into that track. Speaking of, yeah. track 10 is deep down. Let's get deep down with it. I love this one. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't even look at my notes yet. But I love this one with that vocal that he starts that off with, howl. the high pitch howl. Yeah. And it's just like, son of a bitch. It's better than I yeah. can do. And I and I can probably sing just a little bit higher than that. But it's like, yep. damn, that was yeah. pretty badass. It was very badass. I loved it. You can hear that Rhodes piano kind of come in there in that verse again. There's a lot of sexiness in this song, especially at 40 seconds when those horns come in and just kind of create that sound. Really cool sounding song. Oh, Slide, totally. Sexy. There's a dirtiness to it. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I really love this track. Uh, the horn sounds awesome. Yep. Um, you know, it's just not as bright as you're kind of used to that they are, but they still have a sharpness to them. It's just definitely great. And I really wonder if the, the guitar may be riffing alongside to help with the dirtiness a little bit. I think so. Yeah, you get that riff, and that sounds pretty sly and sexy. That Moog bass synth is in there again. I really heard that around 135. Doesn't really overplay it. You know, like a lot of these instruments that we've been talking about just kind of has their place. It throws in a little lick here and there, but this almost sounds just like glue or mud that the song is trudging through with that deep bass sound. Yeah. I do want to talk about the lyrics real quick because I did look this one up. To me, I, I really do think that, you know, it's, I don't know, with, with, with people that talk about lyrics and, you know, they don't really tell you the truth about, sto- you know, how it comes to beef. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, like he goes, I, I didn't quite know what I meant by deep down. And you're, you're kind of like, cool, yeah. you know, just kind of whatever. But then he writes, except I want to have a deep relationship with you or whatever. And then, <laughs> it's like, well, you contradicted yourself. You, you didn't quite know. But then you thought about it. <laughs> no, you said you didn't quite know, except, well, then you knew. You know, why'd you just go right to there? Yeah. So it, so it's like there isn't really anything deep with this, but it, it really sounds good. I, I really love the sound. Uh, the lyrics aren't meant to be like really anything special, but I really love the music with this. Yep. I'm a big fan of the call and response that happens at like 449. In the vocals, so you hear him yell to start it off, but then he's like, get deep down, and then he repeats it, do it right, but he's like yelling in that backup vocal. Sounds like, again, great vocal performance here. Yeah, him tossing the screams in is just absolutely wonderful going on. I do got to admit, it is kind of a a long song. It is. Like, uh, I... 
there's a lot of the same ideas kind of being weaved in, but there is a lot of good music going on in here that it's just, it, it really kind of, there are some moments in here that just with the synth in the background just draws me back to some like 90s hip hop almost. Yeah. You know, how, how about like, that outro at 508? When he oh, starts yeah. that acapella, get deep down. Yeah. Like, I'm just waiting for that thing to drop. And then it just splashes back in at like 514. Oh, ooh, so oh, good. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Makes me jam and groove so hard. And again, this is another. Normally, he's very much melodic with his bass lines and stuff like that. And uh, these ones, he's not very melodic with, Mm-mm. but he still produces heavily. With yeah. them, and they sound so wonderful. Actually, mm-hmm. they're always well mixed in. Yep. All right, man. We're at the ultimate song. Shall Here we, we kick it off? Yep. Track Get number eleven down. is "Winter Bird" slash "When Get Winter Comes." Down. So we got a callback to the intro track here for a little bit at least, and it's like, okay, where's this going? Where's this going? And then at twenty-six seconds. We get a new song, basically. Yeah, it's kind of a quick fade out and then rolls right into this wonderful old McCartney acoustic number. And again, it's him at his best. You know, mm-hmm. this was this is an old song that was uh, produced by uh, George Martin, actually. It was, yep. Recorded in 1997. It was originally going to be on Flaming Pie. So he was yep. in the studio recording that and had an extra minute or so and... So he's like, let me knock this one out and recorded it, but it never made it onto the track. And he thought about putting it on like a re-release, but really wanted to save it. And then he decided to put it on this one, which makes sense because when I first listened to it, I was like, God, his Wait, voice sounds remarkable. Yeah. I was like, what? what is going on? But then I looked yeah. up, it's like, oh, okay, it's 23 years ago. No wonder yeah. why his voice sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, holy shit, man, this guy... Why wasn't he singing like this fucking earlier, right, man? Right. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> how the fuck did he pull this one off? This yep. one must have been worked on for weeks. Right. Nope. It was just from like way back when. I'm no, just like, oh, he was, shit. yeah, in way his to 50s. go, Way to go, Polly. <laughs> he was like 55. He pulled, he pulled one over us, but he did. what a cool way to actually do that, though, to, to utilize the reprise in mm-hmm. that manner of kind of introducing a, a an earlier version, you know, like winter's coming around and. You know, the, the youthfulness of spring following yep. the winter almost. Beautiful idea, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's a pretty simple song. Just Paul and the guitar just going at it and makes for a great McCartney 3 wrap-up because it's really what that's all about is just Paul and the guitar. Yeah, just Paul and Paul, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a... I just really love this little piece. It's just so cute. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's a nice little piece, and that's really all I have to say about it. So, Benji, we're headed to the Radiance aspect. How about uh, how about you uh, do the tee off here? Gladly. So yeah, first yeah. I'll say, this album is probably not a casually listening album or a casual listening album. No. I think this album is at its best when you listen with intent and really sit down and feel the music. If you have it on the background, I think it's all going to kind of blend together. But if you really sit down and analyze it like we did, I mean, you don't even have to go to that extent. Just sit down and pay attention. Maybe smoke a little weed. It's going to sound really good. Oh, we do that around here? (laughs) Once or twice, we've been known to. 
what I really like though is it's still new. Like he's still creating new sound. He's not rehashing old music or relying on an old sound. So he's really still trying to push himself forward as a musician and create new music. And, you know, hopefully he lives for another 20, 30 years if we're lucky. I mean, with technology, you know, he could live till a hundred and maybe hopefully we're lucky to get another three or four albums from Paul in that time. But, and I would think he'll keep pushing forward, but that's one thing I really appreciate appreciate about this music and I think it it exceeded my expectations and I didn't really have expectations going into it so I think that always helps good use of those new sounds didn't phone it in I think his vocals sound really really good all the instrument work is spot on the production is great even though it's subtle so it's not overproduced but it's produced well in certain aspects Um, the second half of the album is where it's at for sure I think the first half of the album is okay but I think that second half is from deep, deep feeling or yeah, deep, deep feeling and on is really, really good. So I'd for sure keep it in my collection. It, criticisms, like I said, I guess if you are looking for like a big hit or just want something that you can put on and everyone's going to enjoy, that's probably not this album, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, he's Paul McCartney's. There's a million songs that you could listen to between the Beatles and all of his solo stuff. So for what it is, I think I think it's a really good album, and you know, I'm, I get so hyped after our album reviews. Like, I I want to stay true. So I I'm coming in at a four sharp. I want to bump it up to a five flat, but a four sharp was my initial. But I could be talked into laying down on a five flat for this one because it it's a good album. It's a good album. Definitely would keep it in my collection. Yeah, no, great, uh, great uh, description there, and great rating. Um, I gotta admit, this was, uh, a decent output by Paul McCartney, actually. So, um, for me, um, just love the different styles, uh, just the different style of production as well. Mm-hmm. Not just the music that he played. Um, he really does value, uh, the production of his sound quite a bit. And it's been consistent throughout his whole career. Um, not afraid to try new things and, um, he really tries with this album actually to bring a different sound to every song and just is absolutely wonderful. Uh, sometimes in the mix leaves a little bit, especially in the beginning, um, the mix leaves a lot to be desired, uh, especially sometimes with his vocal and stuff like that. Sure. Um, there's a little bit too much reverb in some areas too, where I'm like, I want to hear that natural McCartney voice where mm-hmm. I feel like he's trying to get into it, but okay. hey, he's trying something new out. So nothing bad there, but it yep. definitely was a little bit too heavy in some areas, but instrument, the instrumentation is more heavy, uh, all the way through. And I really love that. That really yep. just is absolutely wonderful. Uh, here's my note about the drummers. Well captured, especially on the drums. Ringo would have loved McCartney's attention to this sound, especially if it was in the Beatles. Yeah. In fact, I'm convinced Klaatu is the Beatles based off of this because it's it really was very reminiscent to the the old Klaatu sound, um, mm-hmm. the way that they produced those drums. Um, love the acoustic peaks with Paul. That's where it's at. That's what you want. You get this final song that's a historical song you know that's one of george martin's last so uh super sentimental for you know someone like like a beatles geek like myself you know mm-hmm. but it's also very touching where it's like oh sweet you know and this you know because george martin passed away last year or 2019 and you know it's just like cool yeah he gets to go out with another one on his cap 
Yeah. Um, some songs do carry on a little bit too long. I don't yep. think there's a lot that's interweaving in there. So timing and I feel like it could have been four minutes shorter, this whole album. Um, yep. But that's, you know, most have good resolutions, though, um, at the end. So I feel like you're never, like, left with songs that are incomplete. They mm-hmm. actually are pretty solidly written songs all the way. So excellent work. Um, I don't mind listening to this album, but there's nothing to hear here, um, it, you know, except the wonderful new sounds of Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, so I got to admit, I came on probably a little bit harsher than I probably would if I haven't paid attention to Paul McCartney's career um, as much, but I can't help but, you know, do this weird, stupid Beatles obsession, OCD crap, where it's just like, I got to compare it to the Beatles and I got to do it in a solo career. Yeah. It's all this. But, you know, in reality, this is actually really good. I, I gave it a four flat, but it was it was really between a four and a four flat. Um, I I went up and down with it. But uh, to be honest, if he shortened some of these songs, uh, yeah. this is a tight album. Then. Yeah. And it almost would probably go up for four sharp with me, dependent in some areas, whichever ones he decided to go. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, nothing wrong with this. I would have this in my collection just to show the differences of... 1970 Paul McCartney yeah the actual album and 2020 Paul McCartney yeah I I really think there is uh, Paul McCartney number two you can kind of skip (laughs) but (laughs) McCartney one and McCartney three I think would be fantastic in your uh, vinyl collection yeah no doubt well said well said and that about brings us to the end of this show folks thank you so much for listening we are on the social medias if you want more if you want more of this, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all at On The Record Music. But what we'd really appreciate from you is a review on Apple Podcasts, an honest review on Apple Podcasts, if you like this show or any other shows that you've listened, because that's the best way to help us spread this show to more people. And then just share this with someone else who might like this show, too. That's another way you can help, and we really appreciate that. So we thank so much for listening. Jesse, any parting words of wisdom? Uh, not much other than thank you everybody for listening this week that needle's lifting up off of the record so I think it's time for Benji and me Mr. Ringer and the J-Man to go off the record goodbye peace